apparently inflation and a slow economy uh, does not intend to stop most people from shopping this holiday season uh, because the projections are based on surveys of shoppers. They intend to spend 13% more this holiday season than they did last year. Not about you, but if you intend to spend 13% more, that means it's probably going to be more than that. And we don't have the numbers yet from retail shopping uh, on the Friday after Thanksgiving, but we do have the online numbers, $9.8 billion in online sales in one day. This morning, I want to talk about a different kind of cost and a different kind of expense. I believe that fear costs us something when it controls us. People who are smarter than me about how to uh, judge global economies say that anxiety and depression result in a lack of production that costs the global economy over $1 trillion a year. There's a cost for this anxiety. And if we try to put a language to our fears, if you look at the DSM-5, you'll read hundreds of of different fears that have a label today. But here's what's interesting with those hundreds of fears. Psychologists tell us that we're actually only born naturally, day one, with two fears. Fear of falling and fear of loud noises. That's it. Uh, Yesterday, uh, my niece uh, was at her house with her husband and their Uh, infant baby, and they were telling us about how scared he is by loud noises to where her husband, Dan, has to run and hide in the closet when he has to sneeze because it's going to scare the baby. We're only born with the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises, which is good news because what that tells us is every other fear we experience is learned. The reason that's good news is that means every fear we experience can be unlearned or at least reframed. And I believe in this Advent series we can focus on how to reframe some of our fears. The theme is fear not. Uh, When we read in the Bible that an angel appears, almost always the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. Matter of fact, when God speaks or when there's an image of God that appears, the first thing we often hear him say is, fear not. Not, And we're going to see that uh, throughout this Christmas story during this uh, Advent season. Angels apparently are pretty terrifying to look on. Apparently they're not like the glowing halo wings thing that some of you maybe hung on your tree this week after Thanksgiving if you're a good Christian. Um, no judgment. Yeah, okay, lots. Um, apparently they don't actually look like that. Apparently they're like these like angel warrior looking soldier things that are so terrifying. The only natural thing an angel can possibly say if they make themselves visible is don't be afraid, right? Maybe you've seen shared on social media, the acrostic of the word fear, that fear is false evidence appearing real. Except in this case, it's real. (laughs) Like it's actually terrifying. By the way, some of the things that you're afraid of are not false. It's actually genuinely terrifying. And so when an angel appears to Zechariah and then to Mary and then to Joseph and then to the shepherds, 
It is natural that they would be afraid, and so the first thing they say is fear not. And, and the reason this matters is, is each of those angels are, are telling us that there's something better than just the scary thing you see. And that is, God is coming to planet Earth to rescue us from ourselves. This is the, the theme or the idea behind this Advent series, not my words, but the words of one of the people who spent the most time with God in the flesh. Peter said this, or John rather said this, First John 4. He said, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear, and it's almost like perfect love is entering the midst of this anxiety and chaos, and he's just kind of pushing it to the margins so that we can experience perfect love. Please grab your Bibles, if you would, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And then let's join in our tradition in declaring our creed together this morning. Let's say this as though it's not like freezing cold outside and we're actually like awake and engaged. Are we good? Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter number 2. It's page 757 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Matthew chapter 2. As you're turning... Let me give you a little kind of a, um, a pre-footnote before we read the text this morning. Today's Advent sermon is different than the rest of our Advent series is going to be for a couple of different reasons. It's different, number one, because we're going out of order. So those of you who are like, uh, you're so OCD, you call it like CDO because it needs to be alphabetized. Like, we are going out of order this morning. We're technically skipping past the Christmas story this morning. Then we're going to circle back and go in order for the rest of it. So hang tight. Uh, we're, we're going to go from Zechariah to Mary to Joseph to the shepherds uh, for the rest of the Advent series. This one's going to be a little out of order. The other way that makes this different is there's actually not a fear not in this story. There's just the first half of that. There's just fear. A good bit of it, actually, in this story. Um, so this one's different for those reasons. It's also different because we're going to see a little connection to the study that we just finished in the book of Daniel. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born. So this is not a part of the nativity. This is after the Christmas story. Like significantly past the Christmas story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, and his title is really important to him, not just Herod, Herod the king. We know him historically as Herod the Great. But he would not want to be called Herod the Great. He would want to be called Herod the king. Being king was very important to him. We're going to see that in the story. Behold, wise men, or magi, came from the east. What's interesting about these magi or these wise men is we believe they're a part of the lineage of people who were discipled by Daniel. Whenever there would be these dreams and nobody else could interpret and all these people were bought in and Daniel continued to show, hey, there's a God who knows what he's talking about. He's revealed this to me. He's the star of the show. There's a group of these astrologers who were like, wow, we want to seek this one true God. And that endured for generations to where we believe these guys 
are a part of that multi-generational heritage of seeking after God from Daniel's influence. Kind of cool that they happen to show up in the story. But notice this is after he was born. So if this week you've placed out your nativity scenes and you put the wise men at the manger, they do not belong there. Please place them across your house in the other room. You can move them like a centimeter a day and maybe in like two years they can make it to the nativity. Okay. They show up from the east. They came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They didn't know. They just asked a really dangerous question. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We saw a star when it rose. We've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That word trouble is an interesting, really interesting word, actually, in the original language. Uh, Often when it's used, it's translated terrified. In Matthew's gospel, when he talks about the storm on the sea where the disciples were troubled, the word terrified, they're scared to death. This is the same word that's used there in Matthew chapter 14. The word actually means to disturb, to agitate, to stir up inside, to upset, or to be shaken. Herod was rattled. We could say he was afraid or stirred up on the inside. And what happens when we allow fear to control us is it affects more than us and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And now they're going to quote from the prophet Micah, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler, a reference to the Messiah, who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's like, that's great. Thanks for the information. He dismissed them, and he summoned the wise men secretly. Now he's getting full-on, like, creepy. And it's interesting that the ESV uses the word ascertained. Because that sounds like such a dignified word, but he's actually being pretty gross. Like, yeah, I'd like to ascertain a question. Like, he's full-on creepy at this moment, secretly scheming. So ascertained is way too dignified of a word for him. More like just the beginning of that. From then, what time? So three of you got that. The star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar, liar, kingly pants on fire. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had, been, uh, that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So Herod's first response is he's rattled. Their response is rejoicing and going into the house, not the stable, not the cave, not the manger. They're in a house. He's a toddler. That's not the point. They saw the child, not infant, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They actually did do what Herod was lying about doing. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One of the struggles of Advent every year is retelling and re-examining the same story that many of us have been familiar with since we were children. 
how is there another way to look at this that our hearts will be awakened to the fact that God showed up to save us from our sins? How can we reawaken our hearts to the glory of this? And specifically in regards to Herod's part here in the post-Christmas story, the Lord's just awakened an interesting perspective in me. I'm really grateful for a sermon by Mark Batterson, just such a creative thinker. And, and, and he's the one who awakened this different idea in my mind. I want to talk about a very different Christmas spirit this morning. Uh, I've retold this story before, but several years ago, uh, Tom and Lisa Messer were here for uh, a marriage weekend, a little marriage seminar that we did. And I begged, I mean like begged and pleaded and coerced and manipulated and guilt-tripped Lisa Please, I want you to speak as well, not just Dr. Tom, the smart guy. No, like, we want to hear your heart. And she was like, I don't want to speak. I'm like, please, will you speak? So she agreed to do a, a Q&A uh, during one session, and some of you were there. In that Q&A, she said, I get up every day and make a conscious decision as to whether I will or will not put on a spirit of offense. Brilliant. I remember nothing her husband said with all of his outlines and screens and plans. That statement, I still remember like she said it yesterday. Man, I wish, uh, I wish I would do that every day to consciously pay attention to whether I have or have not put on a spirit of offense. In this story, we see a spirit of offense and how the spirit of offense always ruins the spirit of Christmas. This is what Mark Batterson said that got my wheels kind of turning. And see if this doesn't sound like modern day language here. The wise men, look back at verses 2 and 3, right? They're like, we came to see the king of the Jews. And he gets very troubled by this. And this is what Batterson said. The wise men had no idea that Herod the Great is greatly triggered by the hidden microaggression in their question. Does that sound like, yeah? Triggered by a microaggression. They had no idea. They're like, where's the king of the Jews? Time bomb. I feel threatened. I'm offended. And into that reaction, we say, fear not. Herod is offended and threatened that they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. And he's like, I'm not newborn. I'm kind of old. In AD 40, the Roman Senate officially gave him the title king of the Jews. Can we just say this as the people of God? Because both of these things are really important. To the point of, I know we're not like a, a many reactive church that's on our culture or whatever, but I want to ask you to step outside your comfort zone and, and I want you to respond if you agree with me. You can, mm-hmm, amen, or yes, I also affirm that. However it is that you're comfortable doing that. I believe as the people of God, we should not be offensive. And I believe as the people of God, we should not be so easily offended. Like the, the idea that if we believe that the Savior has come, then shouldn't that change how we react to stuff? 
Like, if that only changes our eternity future and not our eternity present, maybe we've lost sight of how good the good news is. That we might not be so offended or offensive. Here is the glory. You ready for some Christmas? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glo. Okay. Here's some Christmas glory. This is not a Christmas verse. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's a good Christmas verse. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Notice, the offense is real. We're just choosing to look past it. So we're not saying it wasn't offensive. We're not saying that things are hurtful. We're not saying that people don't respond in a bad way. We're not excusing bad behavior, nor are we calling bad behavior good behavior. We're just giving some margin for some gospel perspective. That's glory. I'm going to make a statement that I feel very strongly about this morning. There are two things that have no business in a merry Christmas. If Christmas is, is to be truly merry, there cannot be eggnog or eggshells. Right? Those of you who don't have taste buds, you can enjoy your eggnog. But let's at least agree on the second one. There's just no space in a Merry Christmas for eggshells, right? We're, maybe we're the person who's been offended and now everyone else is on eggshells. Or maybe we get really easily offended and so everybody else is on eggshells because whatever we say might set them off or the, you have to be so cautious. And can we just say enough of the eggshells? Can, can we overlook an offense? Sometimes I'm walking on eggshells because I'm being way too sensitive. I'm making things about me that aren't about me. I'm taking everything way too personal, and that is on me. And sometimes I'm offended and angry at something, and so now people around me have a reason to walk on eggshells, and that's on me. And maybe this holiday season we can just sweep up some eggshells. Because the reality of the holidays is that for many of us is we are going to spend time with people that tend to rub us the wrong way. Some of you, you, do you know why you have issues with some of your family? They actually know you. Like, right? Like, we get around family and they they know us. We can't play any games. We've seen each other at our worst. And here's what I would say. A spirit of offense will kill Christmas. Because a spirit of offense always leads to a spirit of bitterness and a spirit of resentment and a spirit of unforgiveness. And so I want to say this, while it's still November, before December has hit the calendar, I just want to say this. We, we, we just rush like from thing to thing, from week to week. Uh, I feel like I rush from Sunday to Sunday. And, and the reality is this. We started off this fall season, the, the first Sunday in September, September 3rd. I preached a sermon on forgiveness. That may be the best Christmassy thing you could do. This week is to go find a quiet place, get your journal, pour a cup of something other than eggnog, 
and go to our YouTube channel and rewatch the sermon from September 3rd and ask yourself in the Holy Spirit, who do I need to forgive before the calendar turns to December? Like, who do I need to set free? The question is, how do I do that? Overlooking offense. Sounds great. Herod should have done it. That guy, man, how do I do that, though? There's three ideas from the text. Two clearly in the text and then one implied in the text that I want to share with you of of how we overlook an offense. We're going to spend most of our time together on the first point, real quick on the second, and then we'll close with a third point. How do we overlook a spirit? How do we overlook an offense, rather? The first one is simply this. It is a posture of humility. It is getting over the fact that we don't have to be king in every room that we walk into. We're looking for the king of the Jews. And the guy loses his mind, right? Because he wanted to be king. Meant everything to him. Batterson's perspective on this text that was so good for my heart and helpful to me. He titled that talk, Ego is the True Enemy. And he said, if you want to know what makes a person tick, pay close attention to what ticks them off. He was threatened by his position, power, praise. We are too easily offended because we tend to be too self-absorbed. Being too easily offended is actually a symptom. And the root problem is we think the universe results. Listen, that's just true for all of us. Maybe you are like, well, but they're worse at that than me. All of our hearts tend to see the universe through self-absorbed lenses. That's part of living in this flesh. And so what if this Advent we said, you know what? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to work to not attack people, but to attack my ego. Like instead of attacking what everybody says and how they said it and what they meant, and what, why don't I just attack the fact that I think they owe me an explanation for everything? Why don't I attack the phrase that we have egos that are out of control? It seems like everybody is so hurt by every little thing today, right? Like every little intention, every little whisper, every little tone, every like we as a society, like that means we think everybody owes us the perfectly worded response. Like they didn't think about us when they said that. It's not all about us. Our egos are so big, we even have the capacity to make humility about us. St. Augustine said, there's something about humility that really appeals to my ego. (laughs) That's so good. What Herod's response is here, I deserve better. I'm offended. That's the language of pride. That's the language of ego. See, ego is, is different than, than a lot of things in life. It's the, it's the opposite of muscles. The bigger our ego gets, the more fragile we become. And Herod had such a fragile ego that two years prior to this text, he executed two of his sons 
because people liked them better than him. He made false charges of treason against two of his kids. And at the time of this text, when the Magi showed up and accidentally uh, triggered him, when they showed up, at this time his oldest son was under condemnation for the same reason. One fragile little ego. So maybe we can hijack this whole acrostic of fear is false evidence appearing real. Maybe our new acrostic should be fear is a fragile ego angry repeatedly. Maybe what seems like fear is actually self-absorption being exposed. Anybody feel called out by that? Ouch. Often what we react poorly to is that someone has exposed our lack of control, our illusion of control over things that we actually don't have control over. And I've, I've talked about this before. There's this idea in anxiety where if life's going okay, I, I tend in my flesh to have a heightened faith in my ability, heightened faith in self, a heightened faith in flesh. And when that happens, what automatically happens after that is a diminishing faith in God. I can't trust in him and me at the same time. One of us has to take a back seat. And the more I trust in me, the farther back in the seat I'm. And what happens then is all of a sudden life happens or somebody calls us out on something or whatever and we realize, oh, I don't make a great God. And we react out of anger when really what's been exposed is self-trust. And instead when I say, God, I, I want to trust you more and trust me less. A heightened, growing, sanctifying, maturing faith in the authority of God and in the goodness of God and a decreasing faith in me to got it. When that happens, I'm just not as controlled by my circumstances. I don't have to pretend to have it all together. Herod is resisting Jesus in this story. Which is kind of what pride does, right? Pride makes us foolish. He tried to execute the person who came to save him from his sin. Resisting Jesus always leads to a troubled soul. Resisting Jesus always leads to terror and fear. But here's what I love. I, I hope this makes sense. I, I just kind of had this, this light bulb this week. Like, kudos to Herod a little bit. Like, at least he understood what some of us, it takes us a long time to understand. And that is... If I accept Jesus as Savior, I have to accept him as king. And he wasn't willing to trade that. Offense and ego are the true worship wars. Who's going to be the king on the throne of our hearts? So how can I overlook an offense by seeing a greater king than me? It gives perspective. How do we overlook offense? Number two is honesty. We see the, the dishonesty of Herod in this story, and that is what fear does. The song Fear is a Liar. It's actually pretty good at being a liar. 
And fear lies first to us. And then we tend to be less than honest with other people. Herod lied to himself long before he lied to the wise men. We stuff those things down. But when I'm, hear this, when I'm walking in humility that says it's not all about me, I'm now free to be honest about my fears. When I'm walking in humility, I'm, I'm free to be authentic about my struggles. I don't have to play games. I don't have to pretend to have it all together. I can say this is where I'm struggling. Maybe you've seen this before. I had never seen this before until a few weeks ago. But I think this is fantastic. Um, this comic says this. For 43 years, Hank had successfully stuffed every feeling he'd ever had. Until, of course, the morning when Fred asked if he could borrow a paperclip. Explosion. Because it had nothing to do with a paperclip, right? How many of you have been on the other side of asking for a paperclip? And you're like, I don't understand what just happened. I think a whole lot of stuffing, some unhealthy things, instead of just being honest and having healthy conversations. If we could walk in community in such a way that we say, hey, I am struggling with making stuff about me that isn't about me. Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with making everything too personal. Or, hey, I keep reacting out of anger. I think I'm clearly carrying some resentment here. Like, if we can just be honest with each other, the beautiful thing is the Spirit will give us the ability to overlook an offense. I don't think that happens when we're stuffing it all down and hiding inside, playing games. The difference between Herod and us is he actually did have a throne. We just pretend we do. How do we overlook an offense? Through humility and through honesty. And the third word does not start with age. Unfortunately, I tried. It also isn't as implied in the text. It was something that this week, this was not in the sermon when, when I originally wrote it. This, this didn't show up in in the sermon until Wednesday afternoon. The week of Thanksgiving just brought a different perspective to my heart with Herod. And here's the idea. How do we overlook an offense is the power of gratitude. Because here's what crossed my mind. I hope this makes sense. We know the idea, the phrase, the song. It's good to be the king. I just had the thought this week, apparently not good enough. And isn't that just like our hearts? Like everybody else in the Christmas story is like meek and lowly, right? We have a poor Jewish version teenage girl. We have a lowly worker in the temple, Zechariah. We have a carpenter and shepherds, complete outcasts culturally. There's only one like rock star in the whole story, and he was completely discontent with what he had. And that's what my heart does too. That discontentment, that ingratitude, this thought was awakened through the lenses of Herod and then my own heart as I was reading uh, Paul David Tripp's weekly devotional. I don't know if you get those emails, but he said this this week, and I I, want to read this. It's a little bit longer than a quote I normally would share, but it's it's too good to not try to reframe it. He said this. He said, I think a lot of countries have a holiday dedicated to gratitude, which is a good reminder to have on the yearly calendar because I'm convinced that the universal language of a fallen world is grumbling. No matter who we are, 
where we live, what's going on, we always seem to find a reason to grumble about something. Complaint is more natural than gratitude. Dissatisfaction more natural than contentment. Want more natural than worship. Numbering our complaints is easier than counting our blessings. Ouch. Focusing on what we don't have is easier than meditating on all that we have been given. If we are in the center of our world, and if what is most important to us is what we want, what we think we need, and how we are feeling, then there will be no end to the things we find to complain about. We have been blessed. When I'm offended, it's usually because I feel like something's threatened. Probably something I've taken for granted. Probably something I've not expressed thankfulness for. And when I see these things as just a loving gift from a merciful God, it reframes that offense to be something I can look past and see something greater. Garrett and I were talking yesterday about um, he's, he's going to be preaching this week, this Wednesday night at the youth group in Florida where he's interning. And so we were working together on his sermon last night and I was talking to him about the importance of how to end the sermon. And I told him a thing that if you ever go to Bible college, like your first week of preacher class, they'll tell you, you can take off and fly the plane, but if you can't land it, everybody's going to die. And so we were working on the ending to his sermon last night. And then I told him, I don't have a good ending for tomorrow morning's sermon. Like, I want to have that, like, meaningful story or that, like, tear-jerking event that happened and how it fits the text. And, and I don't have that other thing this morning. Instead, I want to try to invite you with me to overlook the offense and let's all see the same thing on the other side of the offense. Like, what are we looking towards if we're overlooking? What are we looking towards? And what I want to invite you to do with me this morning is let's look way past the Christmas story this morning. And let's just end our time together by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. If I can look through that offense, through the perspective, through the lenses of gospel grace, it just changes how I see everything. Because instead of feeling threatened and exposed and fearful, I can be reminded, and here's the words of Peter, that the call is that we would cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Like he, he didn't care for the world. That's awesome. He cares for you. Which means I don't have to carry this. I don't have to figure this out and contend for this and fight for this. I can just cast it on Him. Which means I'm overlooking the offense of the person of Jesus and the display of His love 
for me. When it comes to this unpleasant cocktail of offense and fear and ego and dishonesty and playing games and ingratitude and discontentment, the gospel completely, mercifully disarms us of all of that. His care for me sets me free from the demand to control how I think everyone else is caring for me. Alistair Begg said this. When I hold on to offense, when I just won't let it go, it's because I've exaggerated the, the offense against me and I've minimized my offense against God. Does that hit anybody the way it hit me? When I just won't let something go, it's probably because I just think I'm that bigger of a deal than I really am. And it's, I'm way undervaluing the glory of God and how greatly I've fallen short of it. I feel offended. I feel threatened. And then I stand before the cross. <laughs> and when I see it, the only possible response is a humble posture of heart that is genuine and stirred with gratitude. To overlook an offense is not to say that the offense wasn't offensive. It's just to say that there's a greater story behind it. And that is the one who carried all of our wounds so that by his stripes we could be healed. So we're not overlooking the offense at being fake. We're overlooking the offense at the greatest truth. He cares for you. He cares for you.